Hello dreamers and welcome back to the show. So this is just going to be a commentary on the last episode, the second day of Sherry Papini's interview with the FBI and the sheriff's investigators. In this video, oh, and the reason why I'm doing this is because I know there's some of you who can't handle listening to Sherry Papini talk for two hours and I totally get it. My ears are kind of bleeding right now, but that's okay. In this video, they're sitting in a different area in the Papini home. In the last one, it looked like they were sitting at the dining room table. This time, it looks like they might be in their living room. And Keith Papini is in the frame this time, seated next to Sherry. You know, her little lap dog, right? And the investigators are still babying her, handling her with kid gloves, as they say. Asking her if she's tired or if she's comfortable. And you can just tell that Sherry is really trying to play up her victimhood here by saying, yes, this is comfortable. And she is, again, sitting in a chair with her knees pulled up to her chest. She's leaning away from Keith, actually, but she is definitely trying to dwarf herself, make herself small, and present herself in this scared, childlike, vulnerable position because as I said in the last video, this is what Sherry thinks PTSD looks like. So the investigators are trying to get Sherry to pick up her story from where they left off the day before. She had been providing them with the layout of the room that she was in. They did take more pictures of whatever marks were left on her body after she spent 22 days kicking her own ass. So they ask her if she's okay to continue on from where they left off the day before, and she just says, yeah, but in a more subdued, quiet way. Maybe she was starting to realize just how stupid and fake it all looked when she's way too giddy and way too happy and giggly. So then there was this awkward silence as the investigators waited for Sherry to start talking again. And then she was like, oh, I thought you were going to ask me questions. I do think that the investigators wanted her to talk freely and to provide as much information as she could on her own organically, but she obviously wants them to do the prompting and the question asking because it is a lot of work for her to come up with 22 days worth of lies, right? It's exhausting. And if you happen to watch the video of the first part of the interrogation, you can just see Sherry getting more and more fatigued as they keep prying her for details. So the investigators agree that they'll ask her some questions if that's what she wanted. And she said, yes, she would like them to ask. And then she giggled and said, I think that's probably best. There's a lot of everything. So I don't know where to go. Ha ha. Yeah. Okay. So. The first thing the investigators brought up was the fact that the day before they never really broached the topic of her hair being cut off. And they asked her if that was something that they could talk about now. Sherry paused and said, yes, if you would like to. And the investigator said, yes, if we could. And then again, Sherry went silent. And I mean, honestly, this is such a traumatic and humiliating thing to have gone through. So it's hard to imagine being in a situation like this. Obviously, I've never been held against my will. So when I think about it, I can see myself being a really shitty liar too if I had to describe what it was like to be held captive and then having my hair chopped off. 
it really feels like in this interview that Sherry has no idea how to describe how it happened or how it made her feel because obviously she didn't actually experience this. And it's pretty evident because she says, what's your question? Where would you like me to go in that direction? And the investigator is like, how did your hair end up getting cut during this ordeal? And she says, what led to it? I'm not sure. I keep trying to think about that. That's code for, I keep trying to think up a lie about that. Sherry wasn't prepared for these very pointed questions. It's pretty clear about that. So she continued and said, I think, I think, okay, the, I'm not sure what led up to it, but the cable, where the cable was attached to the top, anytime you made a movement or it moved, it made a really loud noise. So when I would make noise, they would rush into the room. And that's generally where I'm trying to remember that day. Everything like what specifically made that happen. I think I was trying to make the bed. I want to say I was smoothing out a blanket and it made that noise. Um, and there are several long pauses as she sits there going, um, uh, the, and trying, she's trying to conjure up details for the investigators here. So next she said, I think that's why I don't think that there was anything else. There wasn't anything in the trash can. So it wasn't, I don't feel like there was, it was time for that. Maybe I want to say, I think it was because there was a noise. The bigger one came in. I dropped to the floor. I already had my hair pulled back already. I already had my hair pulled back. I think it was my original hair tie. I don't feel that was ever removed. Like, I'm pretty sure I was wearing the same band when running, but I never actually took it out and looked at it. But I don't recall there ever being removed. Again, she's getting into all of this minutiae and insignificant details about her hairband. They said something to each other in Spanish. The other one was outside the room. I was hit here on the shoulder and then it was yanked backwards. It was yanked backwards. I feel like it happened really fast, but not. I don't know. And then it was after she cut it. After she cut it, she had it in her hand. I was down. She was over me, had it in her hand. And I felt it here. You know, that blunt edge, like she had cut it above my hair tie. I felt it here. And she said, I'm going to send this to your mother or I'm going to send it to your mother. I can't remember exactly, but I'm going to, to your mother. So the third time Sherry said this, about this being sent to her mother, she didn't even complete, she didn't even form a complete sentence. And then she said, and I remember when she was cutting it, it was very upsetting. And when she said that, I kind of went, Ugh. huh, like she scoffed at it when the woman supposedly told her, I'm going to send this to your mother. It was one of those moments where it was emotional for me that she cut, was cutting my hair. And I feel like her saying that almost pulled me back into survival mode, I guess. Um, it also made me feel like she didn't know me as a person. And that, and that was it. 
Okay, Jamers, what a crock of shit. This whole thing, again, reminds me so much of Diane Downs. I might have talked about this earlier. When Diane was being interviewed by Ann Bradley following the incident that she reported where she was driving down some back roads when a shaggy-haired man flagged her down, she stopped to see what he wanted, and then he pulled a gun demanding her car, and she said this man went and shot all three of her children and then shot her. There are some very similar things going on here with Sherry when it comes to what she said and did in this very intense and violent moment. These two women have no idea what it's like having these traumatic things happen to them because it didn't happen. If I was having my hair chopped off or my kids shot to death, potentially shot to death, nothing that either one of these women said went through their minds would have gone through my mind in that moment. I actually don't know what I would be thinking, but what Sherry said about this woman cutting off her hair being emotional, but felt like this, would, this woman didn't know her as a person, and that was it? What the holy heck does it even mean? Let me tell you exactly what Diane Down said in that TV interview, and you're going to get a really similar vibe as to what's going on here with Sherry. And when I say vibe, it's this very casual, upbeat talk about the worst day of your freaking life. So in her interview, Diane said this about her thoughts when her kids were supposedly, I just said supposedly, supposedly being shot by a stranger. She said, quote, I have been going through that night so many times. I've even been through it with my psychologist. It's very hard. It's very tearful. There were a lot of memories that, um, I don't know, a lot of people, when something traumatic happens to them, they suppress it immediately. To be honest, dreamers, I don't think there are very many people who experience the murder, attempted murder and maiming of their children that would be able to suppress it immediately. Maybe it's just me. I think I'd still be pretty outwardly upset. Anyway, Diane said, I kept those memories because I knew I was the only person that was going to be able to tell them what happened when we got to the hospital. Wrong again, Diane. Your younger daughter lived to tell about it, and she did in court when she testified that it was her mother who shot them all. Diane continued, and when I got there, the first thing I said was, call the doctor. Second thing was the blood type. Third thing was, call the cops because they've got to find them. So this is all very organized and methodical considering she and her children were just all shot. I'm pretty sure I'd be relatively hysterical. Again, maybe just me. So I had to remember as much as I possibly could. When this man shot my daughter, my first reaction was to snap back to my childhood, to the pain that happened to me back then, my marriage, my entrapment by society. This man was bigger than me. He was stronger than me. He had more power because he had a gun. He was in control and I was not. And I had, there was nothing I could do. I just stood there and I looked at Christy reaching and the blood that just kept gushing out of her mouth. And, and what do you do? You just stand there trapped. And dreamers, if you've seen this video, then you saw Diane Down's smile. When she said the words, the blood just kept gushing out of her mouth. This woman actually smiled when she spoke those words. Diane continued, and then, and then, the gun kept firing. 
and here we have the vanishing perpetrator again. She didn't say that he kept shooting. She said the gun kept firing. And that kind of put some distance between herself and her lies. Anyway, she said the gun just kept firing and firing and firing. And, and it made, it was monotonous. It just kept going. It was like a slow motion picture. And then he swung around towards me. And I, and this is something I did not recall when I was explaining this to the cops because it wasn't like a movie when I was telling them. See, this is her trying to cover up her inconsistencies in her stories because her story changed a lot with each passing day and with each telling of it. I was telling them what happened, the important details. He shot my kids. I pushed him. I ran. And when he swung around, he was pointing. When he swung around, he hit the tips of my fingers and the gun hit the tips of my fingers and that snapped me. And I went, wait a minute. I'm not trapped by society. I don't care if he is bigger. If I stand here and say, yeah, here, take the keys. I mean, there's nothing I can do. You win because you have the gun. My kids are going to die and I am not going to let my kids die. So instead of giving him the keys, I feigned throwing the keys. He did not take the time to point the gun and shoot at me. Obviously, he would have shot me the same way he did the kids. He was swinging in the direction of the keys, firing the gun. He hit my arm. Everybody says, you're so lucky. Well, I don't feel very lucky. I couldn't tie my damn shoes for about two months. And when she said that, when she said she couldn't tie her shoes for about two months, she literally laughed out loud. Diane went on. It was very painful. It's still painful. I'll have a steel plate in my arm for a year and a half, and that scar is going to be there forever. I'm going to remember that night for the rest of my life, whether I want to or not. I don't think I was very lucky. I think my kids were lucky. If I had been shot the way they were, we would have all died, except for maybe Danny. Okay, so dreamers, do you see some of the parallels between these two women who made up these stories? Even though Diane Downs successfully killed one of her children and seriously wounded the other two, both her and Sherry Pipini did what they did because they were both behaving promiscuously. Both of them cheated on their husbands with multiple men. For Diane, her kids were the obstacles to what she wanted. And I believe for Sherry, Keith was the obstacle. Ultimately, Sherry married a provider. But poor Keith, I mean, I've said I feel bad for the guy, but he's such a pushover and he knows it. But anyway, that interview with Diane Downs is on YouTube. It's one thing for me to tell you what she said, but it's quite another to see her and just how much she loved that being the center of attention. It's pretty disturbing and disgusting to listen to and to watch this woman actually say that her children were the lucky ones. One was paralyzed, one survived, but following the shooting, ended up having a stroke and was unable to speak for quite some time. And the other one died. And Diane considers herself to be the unlucky one because she couldn't tie her shoes for two fucking months and is having to deal with the steel plate in her arm for a year and a half. I mean, I cannot even with this woman... And then all the nonsense about what was running through her mind in the moments that she and her children were supposedly being shot by this man. All this crap about snapping back to her childhood and all that pain of that and her marriage and her entrapment by society. What the actual hell is she talking about? 
This whole inner dialogue is going on in her head while her children are being shot. And she has the time in this horrific encounter at night on a dark, abandoned road to be like, wait a minute, I'm not trapped by society. What does this even mean? And by the way, if you're not familiar with this story, Diane shot both of her daughters in the chest twice, killing one of them. And the son, who I believe was only three at the time, was shot in the back and it lodged into his spine, leaving him paralyzed. The investigators almost immediately did not believe Diane's story. So her children became wards of the state right away, and they were eventually adopted by one of the detectives investigating the case. And Diane, who last went up for parole in 2020, will most likely die in jail because she is not and probably will not ever admit to being the one who shot her children and then herself in the arm. Which, by the way, when she pulled into the emergency room, this bitch had a dressing on her gunshot wound while all of her children were bleeding out all over the car. All of that is to say that when Sherry said that when her hair was cut off by these women abductors and that they were going to send it to her mother and how she chuckled and scoffed at the notion and then told the detectives that it was emotional because it made her feel like these women didn't know her. It's complete nonsense. The problem is, is that she just can't put it together because she doesn't know what it's like to actually have this happen to her, just like Diane Downs. After Sherry said that it made her feel like they didn't know her as a person, and then she said, that was it. The way that all of that came to a very abrupt ending with no further explanation is to me a huge red flag that all of this is a lie. The investigator then asked, where was the hair that was cut off? Where did it end up? And Sherry said she had no idea. So again, nothing useful at all from anything that she had to say about this traumatic event and still talking about it in a very upbeat, giddy kind of way. The investigator asked if Sherry knew what they used to cut her hair, and she said she didn't see anything. She never saw anything. Did she hear any sounds like scissors would make? And she said she just can't remember if it was a snipping sound or a whoosh. And like, I think, well, let me think of the sound effect that she made. She made like a whoosh kind of sound. I don't even know what that means. It kind of sounds like she was mimicking, like lopping off her entire ponytail with like a katana. After that, they asked more clarifying questions about where the hair was chopped off, if it was before or after she was branded. I'm pretty sure if this happened to you, you would know if you were branded first or if your hair was chopped off first. But she had all this hesitation and she said before. The investigator asked about the cable attached to the pole in the closet and the sound that it made. He suggested that it was metal. It did like a clanking sound and Sherry replied, mm-hmm. Then she said, meaning her and Keith, we have a bolt in our garage, and that's what it felt like. And then she laughed again. It is so awkward to listen to this particular exchange. I mean, seriously, what is she saying? I'm going to tell you word for word what she said. Quote, we, um, we have a bolt in our garage, and I was able to touch that. That's what it felt like. I don't know if it's called a bolt. Sorry. Anyway, I touched it. That's what it felt like. Hee hee, giggle giggle, ha ha. I mean, come on. We have a bolt and I touched it and that's what it felt like. And then she laughed. Get the fuck out of here with that bullshit. Then Sherry veered off and started talking about scratching her own hands and having little scars and stuff somewhere, you know, under her fingernails. 
under her fingernails and things. Those were her exact words. And she said that it was really hard to get a good grip on it because it was sharp. It really sounded like the investigator had no idea what she's talking about because none of this makes any sense. She's saying whatever the things that this cable was bolted to the pole with was sharp. Last I checked, cables and bolts and poles don't really have sharp edges. But then she kind of backtracked and said that she was gripping it really hard, I guess, trying to save herself from herself, and that she has cuts and scars under her fingernails. That's a pretty good way of making sure that these fictitious scars are not visible. Put them under your fingernails, y'all. Scars under your fingernails. That's what happens when you're trying to escape a kidnapping. So next, the investigator wanted to know more about Sherry saying that every time she made a noise, the women would be coming into the room running, which is absurd in and of itself. I'll get to that, but he asked her, when you made a noise, they would immediately come in. Was there ever a time when you made a noise and they never came in? Sherry replied, "Mm, no, I don't think so. I mean, there was one, maybe once, where I made a slight, but then I'd like freeze, but no, it was pretty much every time. (sighs) Okay, so this is so ridiculous. This woman expects these seasoned investigators to believe that for 22 days, she was chained with a metal cable to a pole bolted into a closet that made a metallic clanking sound every time she moved and that every single time she caused that cable and metal to clank together these two women came running in every single time she stated that she would do exercises she made the bed she tried pulling boards off the windows for 22 days they came into the room and she had to drop to the floor and not look at them every time they heard a sound If after a day or two of having Sherry attach that pole and cable and they come to find that it's pretty secure and she's not going to be able to escape, I'm fairly certain that these kidnappers would ease up on the running into the room every single time. It's just really silly and not very well thought out. But then again, nothing about this story is well thought out at all. Next, Sherry was asked if there was ever a time when she felt like she was the only person in the house. Sherry replied, no, because you could almost, it was almost like you could feel the movement of the house or even um, because there was a time where the radio or whatever it was outside was blaring quite loudly where they'd still hear me somehow. They'd still like the radio would be super loud and then I would do something like using that as some kind of muffle. Like when I pulled the screw out of the outlet, um, um, did that muffle the sound of that? And then I had it in my hand and I could use it without moving the cable. Like I could use that to pick up the lock on the bed. If I had the chain here, I held it with my legs so I could use the screw without moving the cable on there without making any noise. Um, but to answer your question, I don't think so. Okay, so that was seriously one of the longest non-answers I've ever heard. How are these people sitting there with straight faces listening to this craziness? All they wanted to know was if there was ever a time when she was at the house 
and nobody else was there. So she, what, talks about being able to feel the house move and all this nonsense about picking the outlet screw and muffling the sounds of the radio that they had blasting Spanish music all the time? And you know, with that statement in and of itself, Sherry just contradicted herself again because she said that they would still hear her somehow. It's not possible, which is why she needed to tack on the somehow at the end of that statement. She realized that if these women were blasting Spanish music all the time, they're not going to be able to hear the sound of a cable moving around on a pole in a closet in a bedroom. So yeah, I'm pretty sure that everyone in the room is becoming buried underneath all this bullshit that Sherry is shoveling, and they know it, including poor Keith. So Sherry continued, I could sometimes hear, sometimes feel a door. I feel like the vehicle was nearby that window because I could hear the vehicle. Maybe there were times when I couldn't hear it, but I did hear it. Rather, I don't. Um, maybe there's times I didn't hear it every time. There were times when I could hear it. And at this point, Sherry's voice kind of trailed off because I think she's starting to realize that she's babbling. Sherry was asked if she had any recollection of exhaust or engine sounds. She replied, honestly, I would be terrible at that anyway, car-wise. And then she awkwardly giggled again. The investigator tried to clarify. Driving down the road, you see a larger vehicle. The engine will make a louder sound, which everybody knows. I think we'd be able to tell the difference between the sound of a Honda engine starting up versus the sound of like an F-350 starting up. But, you know, Sherry's avoiding answering these very specific questions and using ignorance as an excuse. But anyway, she continued, I feel like if I heard something, it would be a little bit easier for me, but it's not that distinguishable noise, if that's what you're asking. And she trailed off again. And you know what? It doesn't even really sound like Sherry's believing in herself and her ability to keep up with her own lies anymore. And her saying that she feels like if she heard something, I mean, what the hell are they supposed to do? Play YouTube videos of the sounds of every car in the world starting up until she hears the one that maybe sounds like the vehicle that the kidnappers drove? It's so dumb that she even suggested that. But she continues on with more rambling nonsense and the investigator tries to clarify. And at one point she says, I don't know. I would say that I didn't hear any extra clanging or the like. Like, the, I don't know, extra clanging from the sound of an engine starting. Whatever, Sherry, you're just dumb. One of the investigators asked if Sherry had heard multiple doors opening and closing on the vehicle, and she immediately said no. It was only one door that she remembers listening for that. So it kind of lines up with her never being left alone in the house, suggesting that if one of them left, one of them stayed behind. Therefore, she would only hear one door opening and closing. Or, the truth being, it was just James Reyes coming and going from his job and his day-to-day -day life as she's hiding from her husband and children at his place, right? Sherry was asked about the radio outside. They wanted to know where outside the radio was. She said she never actually saw it, which is probably one of the few true things that she's saying because it didn't happen. 
So Sherry was next asked if there were any times when it was just one of them at the house. And again, she launches into another windy non-answer to a point where she actually forgot the question. She replied, "Mm, no, it's hard to say because I would be down on all fours with my head down. Yeah, that's hard to say, but well, they would talk to each other. So I know the other one was close by. Um, Ask me your question again. (laughs) So the investigator repeats himself, but he asked about them being inside the room. Was there a time when there was only one of the females inside the room? Sherry replied, inside the room, yes, but the other would always be nearby. But inside the room, one at a time, yes. Then he asked, did either, let's say when they were hitting you or being violent towards you, is there any time when one of the females would try and stop the other? She said, yes. He asked her to describe some of those moments. She replied, the, the younger one, I feel like because I couldn't understand her, but I feel like her body language was, um, was the pointing or this, and she made a gesture with her hand. This, you know, body language wise, it doesn't matter what language you speak. I mean, um, you know, she, uh, she, I've seen, cause I can, I, I was never allowed to look them in the face, but I did see this signal with her hand. And then Sherry gestured again, facing with her hand, which is stop, obviously. But, um, sorry, this is making my stomach hurt. Yeah, same girl, same, right? And she continued, the, she's making no sense at this point. The little one, the bigger one, the little one, the bigger one was very forceful. And it just, to me, the little one would defend herself and just do what was asked, maybe. And she had a huge upward inflection with the maybe. It was so bizarre. She said, I feel like the bigger one enjoyed it and the little one didn't. Is that, does that make sense? And the investigator said, absolutely makes sense. When not one single thing she just said made any kind of sense at all. But you know, in this investigator's mind, He's thinking, he's got to be thinking, absolutely not. But Sherry carried on. I definitely, things like the burn, cutting my hair, the burn on my arm, the chain, the lock, that was all from the bigger one. It was not from the little one. The little one would feed me most often. The little one is the one that said, with the trash can, She was the one who would stand in the doorway at the shower. She was the one who would bring clothes also. The bigger one never did that. So while Sherry was in the middle of that part of her statement, the investigator interjected to try and ask about what she would usually eat, but Sherry continued talking over him. And when she was done, she giggled and said, You were asking a question, ha ha he he. And he repeated, What did you eat? What did they give you to eat? Now, dreamers, this ought to be good, right? <laughs> okay. Sherry replied, um, what's it called again, babe? I keep forgetting the name. And Keith said cream of wheat. But it was like dry. Cream of wheat, yes, barely mixed. And like rice tortillas. One day I got two apples, a cracker, 
but they were kind of weird, kind of like, I want to say they were like animal crackers, but not really. Yeah, more answer, non-answers. And they definitely certainly did not taste like animal crackers. They weren't anything I'd ever seen before. I hid those. Anything that wasn't, uh, um, you know, like, no, Sherry, we don't know. But she just cut herself off and never completed that sentence, leaving us yet again with more non-answers. And dreamers, it gets better because she's going to continue. Sometimes it was like scraps, like the fat off of a piece of meat or something, and they just scrape it off of a plate. So what we're actually hearing is that these two Hispanic ladies would cook themselves up some steak and whatever they didn't eat, the fat, the gristle, the bones, they would scrape it off onto a plate and give it to Sherry. I mean, (laughs) the lumpy cream of wheat, the random cracker, and the meat scraps. Sherry is really wanting us to think this ordeal was humiliating in every single way, as many ways as possible. And it's very clear what she's doing here, to me anyway. Anyway, Sherry said, more often than not, it was rice, or um, I keep forgetting the name, and then someone reminds her cream of wheat, and she said, thank you, sorry, or a tortilla, like corn or something like that. One time it was a piece of bread, like the end piece. They would specifically give her only the end piece because nobody likes that piece, right? I felt like it could have been wheat bread, but it was the end piece. The investigator next, next asked about whether there was a sticker on the apples, and she said no, and then went on to describe the apples as waxy, mealy, and bruised. They asked her about what kind of rice, and she said sometimes it was steamed white rice, sometimes it was Spanish rice. It definitely tasted like it was homemade Spanish rice. She said, I've made Spanish rice even, so definitely um, because I giggle, giggle, make the box Spanish rice more often than not, and it was not, it did not taste like that. It was always gritty, and I even, there was even a time when I like tried to pick it apart to look for something. I don't even know what that means. The investigator next asked if she ate regularly or sporadically. And Sherry replied, no, it was maybe once a day. But it was hard because I feel like every time I would get on somewhat of a routine to exercise my mind of this is the time of day because my body was starting to get hungry at the same time. I was like always hungry, but like I would exercise at the same time. I would try to get a routine down, but it would change as soon as I feel like maybe, you see, it's hard because sometimes I feel like it was the next day, but it could have been the same day or it felt like a day had gone by, but then it didn't because I'd wake up at different times and I would fall asleep at different times. And then it would be, did I exercise already? I'm pretty sure I did that, but, um, She had a really strong upward inflection at this point and said, I don't think it was more than once a day. It was certainly not every day, but I don't know. I don't know. I don't think it was more than once a day, but it again, days were difficult because I didn't sleep. It wasn't like I got up at certain times. I don't even know about the times. There was a lot of sleeping for me. Okay, that's a huge contradiction because she just said, Days were difficult because I didn't sleep. And then 
Five seconds later, she says, there was a lot of sleeping for me. It's like, girl, you're so dumb. So she went on and um, that's one of the, I don't, I don't, the sleeping made it difficult to keep track. Everything I tried to keep track of, there was no way to do it. I don't know. I think it was once a day, maybe every other day. So all of that was to answer whether or not she ate regularly or sporadically. She went into that whole diatribe, right? <sighs> so here is where we get to the part I brought up last time about Sherry drinking water in the shower and her inconsistencies with that. The investigators asked her about how she was given water. She said that there was a plastic bottle of water with no label on it. Every time, any time, I feel like I only remember two showers, but I drank a lot of water every time I was in the shower. She paused for a minute and then she said, I'm trying to remember the moment that I got the bottle of water because I was allowed to have a bottle of water, which I rationed, but I don't remember. I want to lean towards the end when I had it. Then she went on to say that they would refill it when they would clean out the trash can that she used as a toilet. She said, there was only, there was only one time that I recall there was actually seeing the trash being removed. It was always that really yucky feeling of waking up and knowing that they had been in the room, but me not remembering it. So here we have the very first instance in this whole entire ordeal where the kidnappers made her feel yucky. And that would be when they would come into the room while she was asleep. That's the yucky feeling. Nothing else that they supposedly did to her up to this point, right? Just if they came into the room and did something and she never knew about it. Next, Sherry was asked what she did to exercise her mind. And this is where Sherry began to fake an emotional breakdown. I want to say for the one of the first times. This when she might have been crying, fake crying in the first video, but this is the first time on this particular day. I actually posted pictures of her in this moment, breaking down into tears or at least trying to appear to. And she said, I would sing the song I sing to Violet. I would read the books I read to my children. I could hear my husband. I would know the things that he would say and Christmas carols and the random jingles that he would sing in our kitchen. A lot of the times it was, if Keith was here, what would Keith do? I would go over my shows in my mind, shows that Keith and I would watch, and try to get some kind of gauge of time. And at this point, Sherry's already back to speaking normally without crying. I mean, the times I sang the ABCs even, and now she's back to laughing at this point, I would mouth lines from New Girl, some more giggling. I would talk to my husband. I would talk to my babies. I would feel like if I would talk to my babies, it would help me to hold on more. The investigator asked Sherry about the story he was told where she would roll up her sweater. She said it was a sheet. It was a sheet. And I rolled the sheet and I sang to it like my Violet. When Violet goes to sleep, I rock violent on this arm and I sing to her before I lay her down. And I did that before I would go to sleep sometimes. She also said it was something that she did when she was by herself in the room and that her kidnappers never saw her do it. So she'd be able to sing. I guess that didn't have them come running to kick her ass because she was making too much noise, right? So Sherry was next asked about her broken nose. 
As she sat there, blowing and wiping her nose, the investigator said, I gotta ask, how does that feel, the broken nose? And she said, oh, it's much better. It's sore. It's very sore. And then with another weird upward inflection, she said, it's really only sore right here now? I feel like when I start crying, it swells more. Well, good thing the crying is fake, I guess. It's a good sore, she said. And then she laughed. She actually said that. It's a good sore. What does that even mean? I mean, okay, so like if you work out and when you're done a few hours later, maybe the next day you're sore, that means you had a good workout, right? But if you're sore because your nose is broken, that doesn't mean it's a good kind of sore. I don't understand this woman. Her broken nose is a good sore. I don't even know this woman thinks, I don't even know how she thinks this is even remotely believable. If somebody broke my nose, I would not be sitting here laughing about it, talking about being a good kind of sore. This was the injury that James Reyes did not want to help her with. I mean, I don't think he wanted to help her with any of them, but he did not want to punch her in the face like she had asked him to, which, I mean, it was probably hard to resist because her face is so punchable, right? But what they did instead was Sherry held a hockey stick up to her face and he like shoved it into her nose. Then they asked Sherry if she wanted to take a break at that point. And she said in her very childish voice, the camera would like me to take a break. Some small talk ensued and Sherry is just loving all of this attention on her. It's so weird. But she said, a little break is nice. That was a tough one. Yeah, it's tough getting through an hour worth of lies. And then suddenly she had this really weird outburst when she said something like, I don't want to talk about my kids anymore. And then she laughs some more. And the investigators, they seem like they're trying to humor her, but it's just so cringy. And when they started back up again with the questioning, Sherry just randomly started rambling. She said, I feel like it was the silence and the dark. And the silence that really made me not okay. Everything else, I made it through. I was, oh, uh, I could do it. It was the silence and the dark room that every day something else was coming. And not knowing that anxiety of, and that there's something else that's about to happen. And not knowing that something else was about to happen. At this point, this interview gets so cringe when the investigator begins to praise Sherry for her strength and courage, he says, no doubt your strength. Obviously, you're here. That strength was able to hold you and get you through. So I hope that means something to you, that your internal strength and drive allowed you to get where you are today. And then he tells her that that's how the world is seeing her as this survivor and how much courage that she had getting through those 22 days. Which is really unfortunate because there were people out there who genuinely believed her and defended her, only for all of this to come out four to five years later. Sherry was next asked if there was ever a time when the music was turned off, like the kidnappers were going to bed, so they shut off the music. 
When Sherry went to answer the question, she was maybe silent for about 10 seconds. It just feels like she's really trying to think up something that's plausible and makes sense. Unfortunately for her, nothing she says really fully makes sense at all. And her behavior throughout these interviews is the most baffling thing of all. But you could tell that Sherry just can't help herself. And finally, she answers by saying, I don't think so. So dreamers, let's think about that for a moment. Sherry says that these women were blasting mariachi music around the clock 24-7 for 22 straight days, never turning it off. And the answer to the question is, I don't think so. I think you would know for sure if the music was ever off. But then again, it seems like one of the ways that Sherry is hoping to get through this by acting like she doesn't remember, as if she's blocking things out due to the trauma of it all. That's just my guess. Who the fuck knows what this woman is thinking? Then we get to another inconsistency. Sherry says that she doesn't think the music was ever off. She was asked if the music was tied to car doors opening and closing, and she said she didn't think so, that she tried to listen for that. If they were using music to try to cover up them coming and going from the house, I guess, then she said that's when a lot of the injuries occurred. Because it was when I would think that they weren't there. She stated earlier that there was never a time when she felt like she was the only person in the house, that the kidnappers, either one or both of them, were there at all times. So what would make her think that would ever come a time when she would be left alone? Clearly, the kidnappers in her fairy tale don't trust her at all. So she continued, I would attempt movement in things. And occasionally it took them longer to get where I was. But I don't know. I don't think so. It was different. It was different every time. Again, here, put together everything that Sherry is saying. They're blasting music, but somehow they can hear the sounds of the cable and the chain and the pole from every other place in the house. Sometimes they arrive fast and cause her injuries. Sometimes they took longer to get to her. But they somehow heard the noises coming from the closet, inside the bedroom, from across the house, with music blasting. Okay, Sherry, if you say so. Okay, so here we go with another inconsistency. The investigator asked Sherry about having talked about hearing the TV at times, every once in a while, and Sherry interrupted and said, because the radio wasn't on all the time, hello, didn't you just say that there was never a time when the radio was off? But anyway, she was asked about whether or not she heard commercials that would signify, and then Sherry cut him off again, but I'm assuming that he was going to ask about anything she heard that might have given her an idea of where she was at. But she cut him off and said no, because I kept falling asleep. It was Spanish, something or other, and then I would fall asleep. I feel like for me, it was, thank God she's sitting down and watching TV, and it was a moment where I could just rest, I think. Yeah, the radio was terrifying. Giggle, giggle, laugh, laugh. The sound of the radio was scary to me, but the sound of the TV, I feel like I would just kind of like, <sighs> rest. 
And then she was asked if they ever watched or listened to anything in English. And she said there was never English. There was never English. So that helps her from having to recall anything significant that the women would say. She literally does not have to give her kidnappers any dialogue whatsoever across these 22 days because she claims they don't speak English. She doesn't have to put any words down on paper, on the official record. She doesn't have to quote them with anything, which is huge because that's a lot. Sherry continued, but the TV was not on often. It was rare that I actually heard a TV. It wasn't very loud. Maybe there would have been English and I just didn't hear it very well because it wasn't very loud. I mean, aren't these like the most useless answers ever? They've been talking to her for hours by this point, and they have absolutely zero leads that have actually come from her. Except for the fact that this is all a bunch of malarkey, and I think they know it. If they do not believe Sherry's story in these interviews, they're doing a pretty damn good job keeping straight faces and expressing their empathy. I gotta hand it to them. So next, they're going to start asking about the injuries on Sherry's body. The investigator said, was there anything we talked about a lot about the bruises regarding them injuring you by making noise and the burn on your arm besides the one on your back, which we'll have to eventually talk about. Was there any other because it looks like your legs. Do you know how you receive most of those injuries on your legs? Sherry replied, no, but even originally before then, I bruised really easily. It could be, I mean, even something that I possibly could have done, but no, because it was a lot of, and then she started pointing to things on her body saying like this one, and I feel like was this, or was a lot of blocking and kicking. And then she stammers over her words for a few seconds and said, the bigger one would hold something. I'm just, I'm trying to remember feeling it was a lot of hitting with something, not punching or shoving. I didn't like being in the closet. It was a lot of shoving around the closet area. She was then asked if she remembers specifically being hit. She replied, kicked, yes. The investigator quickly moved on to ask about her nose and how that occurred. She said, I was woken up by it, and I don't remember if it was like this or like that. She made some hitting gestures. It was, I was woken up by it, and the investigator said, so you were sleeping? He sounded surprised because Sherry always said that they would hit or injure her when she would make noises, but now they're coming in, hitting her in the nose while she slept? I mean, that does sound like a really horrible way to be woken up and have your nose broken like that. And yet, she talks about it like she's just discussing her last trip to Costco. So anyways, he said, so you were sleeping? And she replied, correct, on the bed. And he asked, what happened right after that? And she said, I was woken up. I was told to change. And he said, and you were woken up with the pipe, I'm assuming? So, Dreamers, I don't think I heard that detail or I may have overlooked it, but I guess her story to the FBI is that they hit her in the nose with a section of pipe when we know the truth is James helped her by shoving a hockey stick directly into her nose. So, 
So when the investigator asked, you're woken up with a pipe, I'm assuming, Sherry replied, uh, yeah, well, yeah, I mean, whatever. That's such a crazy ass answer. Listen to what she's saying here. She got whacked in the face when she was woken up with a pipe, presumably. And she says, uh, yeah, well, whatever. She's so dismissive of something that happened to her, supposedly happened to her, that was so violent. I've never been hit in the face with a piece of pipe before, but it certainly does not sound like a good time at all. But yeah, whatever. So Sherry continued, I was told to change. There was already clothing on the bed. So she gets whacked in the face with a pipe and immediately told to change. And wouldn't there be blood gushing from her nose? And they would want her to change into fresh clothes with a freshly broken nose. All right, go on, Sherry. She said, um, I felt so dizzy and my ears were ringing. And when I tried to put the sweatpants on, I felt over. Sherry was asked if she was exchanging clothes at the time or was she getting completely dressed? And she said, yes, I had clothes on already. And I put the clothes on that were on the bed. So now at this point, the investigator gets into the blood. He said, obviously, I assume there was some bleeding. How did you clean that up? And Sherry replied, it was already on the other clothes. And then she put her hand up to her face. And when she did this, she pulled her sweater up to her nose. And she said, I did one of these numbers to stop the bleeding using her sweater. And then she perked up a whole bunch and said, it didn't bleed very much. It didn't bleed. Um, Yeah, it didn't bleed very much. It wasn't like gushing blood. Okay, so I went to WebMD and I looked up liars with broken noses. So Sherry takes a pipe to the face. It breaks her nose, allegedly, and it didn't bleed very much. Well, according to WebMD, a broken nose is actually a pretty serious and painful injury. It says, these are common symptoms of a nasal fracture. Swollen, bent, or crooked nose. Pain, especially when you touch your nose nosebleed, black eyes, bruises beneath your eyes, trouble breathing through your nose, mucus running out of your nose, a cracking sound when you touch your nose. And then it says, right after you've gotten hurt, you'll need to stop any bleeding and try to reduce pain and swelling. If you only have swelling and moderate pain, you may choose to wait to see your doctor. Your symptoms could improve and you might get better on your own. But see your doctor if three to five days have passed and you notice any of the following. The pain and swelling aren't getting any better. The swelling is gone, but your nose looks crooked. You have a hard time breathing, even after the swelling improves. You're having frequent nosebleeds or you have a fever. Get emergency help if you have a severe headache, neck pain, vomiting, or passing out. A hard time breathing, bleeding that won't stop clear watery fluid draining from your nose so there's potential for a broken nose to bleed for days and days after the break happens but not to good old pants on fire papini her broken nose is perfectly healed all by itself and barely shed any blood amazing right the investigator then asked did any of that end up on the walls or on the floor sherry replied i would assume so there wasn't anything that I know of on the walls, but gosh, I don't know. But well, okay, I did that. And then she put her sweater up to her nose again. 
And then she said, ouch, that's sore. So she's sitting here demonstrating. And yeah, it's stupid. She continued. It would have to be on the floor because I set the sweater down. So to answer your question, yes, it has to be on the floor. It wasn't profusibly. And yes, Sherry said the word profusibly. That's a lot worse than my supposedly earlier. It wasn't profusibly bleeding. I wouldn't say it was dripping onto the floor, but um, I, I was more focused on my eyes. Ha ha. Because I couldn't see. Ha ha again. Yeah, it really didn't bleed that much, she says. The investigator next asked if there were any other injuries that they hadn't touched upon besides the obvious. She replied, no. I mean, the things I did with the zip ties, the pulling, the breaking my fingernails on things. But no, I didn't see them very often. There was a lot of alone, just alone. Me in the room by myself. Me in the room by myself. Sherry was asked if there was ever a time when she felt left alone at a location where they would be off-site for an extended period of time, and she said no. Anytime I thought I was alone, I would end up making noise in some way or another. There would be times where there would only be like uh, one opening the door at a time. So I feel like there could have been a time maybe that there was just one there. There had to have been times because there was a fireplace, so you would have to go out to get wood, right? There were times when there was only one. How about the times when she heard the car coming and going? It certainly wasn't driving by itself, but then again, like I said, none of this ever happened. Well, that was the next thing the investigator suggested, that she would be alone when a vehicle would leave, or there would be one person there, and Sherry goes, right, um, even stocking up, I'm sure. I know, maybe there was a grocery store. I mean, you would have to go to the grocery store or something at some point, I would think. I don't know more non-answers next the investigator said that he was going through he was going to go through a list of some things and that this was going to require hearing now for me dreamers this was one of the biggest red flags throughout this entire interview and even if they're already not believing sherry at this point i think there is little doubt that she's lying through her broken nose after this so he continued however you access that part of your brain Usually when I'm trying to hear something, I close my eyes. Sherry said, K. He said, yeses, noes, I don't knows are all fine answers. So Sherry closes her eyes and puts her head down, probably praying that they're buying this bullshit. When the investigator wants to know, in those 22 days, did she hear any of the following sounds? Farm animals, no. Cows, no. Horses, no. Chickens, no. Equipment, no. Farm equipment, no. Tractors, no. Buses, no. UPS truck, no. Passing vehicles, no. Chainsaws, no. Train, no. Train whistle, no. Honking, no. Geese honking, no. Doorbell, no. Telephone, no. The investigator then said, now that you're listening, do you recall any sounds that I haven't? And then she cut him off and said, the fireplace, the creak of the door, the creaky door, the fireplace, 
the flushing of the toilet, pots and pans in a kitchen, garbage disposal, some kind of, and then the investigator suggested an airplane, and she said no, some kind of ticking, clicking, doing something that requires a ticking or a clicking, or the radio, a TV. The investigator said, I have a sound to ask about. Long-distance gunshots, like shotguns from people hunting? No. So then they went off into the side conversation, Sherry interjecting more of her weird upspeak and giggling. So the investigator eventually got back to the sounds. School bells? No. Alarms? No. Sirens? No. Nothing outside of the house other than what we've already talked about that you can recall? Sherry replied, footsteps. I could hear wood being brought in. I know that sound, the clink of like stacking wood, but never a chainsaw or an axe. The other investigator asked, running water? And Sherry said, yes. Finally, yes. Everyone got excited. But then the investigator meant like a river, outdoors, water flowing. And Sherry said, oh, I thought you meant like the sink. The investigators at first, when Sherry said yes to the running water, they were like, yay, we finally got one. But it was a letdown since Sherry was talking about water running from a faucet. So eventually she said no, just running sink water. A babbling brook? No. Okay. We could all see what's going on here. These investigators are trying to determine where Sherry held herself for 22 days. She was actually in the city of Costa Mesa, California, which is very much a big city, and you would be hearing sounds of the city all the time. They're trying to determine whether or not she was in a rural area or an urban area, and they want to know about noises that she heard outside of the house. It doesn't do shit for the investigation to talk about what's going on the inside. Most houses have basic sounds, but all Sherry is willing to talk about are the sounds that are coming from inside the house. And to me, it's an effort to keep the location of where she was playing hide and seek with poor Keith as vague as possible. But for her to sit there and to not even name one single sound that she heard outside the house is just unbelievable. She was unwilling to give up not one single thing that she could have or would have indicated came from outside in the general surrounding areas. So finally, they just had to ask, based on what she was hearing or not hearing, does she think that she was in some kind of rural place? Or if she thought maybe she was in a subdivision, if she knows what kinds of sounds or things that might have indicated something, anything at all of where she might have been. And Sherry replied, I listened for neighbors, cars, things. I heard nothing. I heard birds. She was asked what kind of birds. And she brought up an app, which I guess helps you to identify birds. But then she knows she heard a flicker because she says, I know what a flicker sounds like. Yeah, so in all of these hours of interviews... (laughs) trying to figure out where in the world Sherry was being held all those days. The only clue that she was willing to provide about anything outside of the home was a single species of bird. And then she said she heard it through the window, the boarded up window, right? And then she said she heard other smaller birds and 
offered to listen to some birds outside to try to help identify the species so they might be able to narrow down a particular area of California that she could send them off onto another wild goose chase again. But Sherry continued, I don't recall hearing like the breeze through a tree or the creak of a tree. I don't recall any of that. Because we can totally identify a particular geographical area of the state of California based on the sounds that the breeze makes, right? Then Sherry randomly blurted out quail and proceeded to mimic the sounds that a quail makes. She was asked if she heard any barking dogs, and she said no, very quickly and rapidly, no. The investigator barely even finished his sentence. So in 22 days, Sherry never heard a dog. And if she did, because if she did, she knows that she would have to come up with a type of bark, what possible breed she thought it was, was it a high-pitched bark, was it a deep bark, that sort of thing, you know, details, but she quickly shut down having to answer any of those specifics by telling them she never heard a single dog bark. But wait a minute, there's another change in Sherry's story again, because she followed that statement quickly up with, but I did on the last day, and that was scary. The investigator asked what she meant. Sherry clarified that she heard the barking dog after she was released while she was on the side of the freeway. The investigator wanted to know more about that, so she started laughing again and apologizing for talking over him. So he said he wanted to talk more about her final moments of fake captivity. So Sherry shifted in her seat a little bit, still insisting on sitting in that cocooned position with her knees pulled up. She puts her hair behind her ears and she folds her hands back onto her knees, grasping them tightly. She flashes a huge smile and flirtatiously says, where would you like to begin? And the investigator said, the barking dog. And she replied, the barking dog was when I was trying to figure out how to get into, can I ask what that was? Was it a shipping yard or was it a junkyard? What was that fenced in area next to the freeway? The investigator told her there were two areas. One was a lumber yard and the other was a propane yard. She said, okay, there was like a, I want to say like a modular type house where like an office would have been or an office building. So they were able to clarify that that was the propane place. And she said, okay, that's where I was trying to get in, but I couldn't. And then I heard a dog barking and then went, no. And then she started more of her giggling and her high pitchy voice saying, no, I'm glad I ran the other direction. She just pointed out a moment ago that she didn't hear a dog barking until the very last day that she was dumped on the highway, which she also pointed out was very scary for her. A guard dog in a warehouse yard behind a fence is the scariest thing out of this whole entire ordeal. And after that giggly statement, she turned to Keith and smiled at him. He was completely, totally checked out onto his phone. The investigator asked more about where she was in relation to the propane yard, and she replied, the corner, do you know the corner, the corner connected to the street that I was on? There was a house. I went near the house, and I stood in front of the house, and I looked at the house, and I said, nope. And she made some fugly facial expression and continued, it was very dark. 
I want to say there was a mailbox. Yeah, no shit. A mailbox attached to a house. Man, she's dumb. So she kept going. Okay. I think I stood by where there was maybe a mailbox or something, but it was very dark. And again, dreamers, all of this nonsense is absolutely useless. There were no lights on. It didn't look inviting. Because that's what you need to feel when you're searching desperately for help after surviving 22 days of captivity is someplace inviting to run to. So the investigator asked, so once you tried to find help in that area, what did you do next? Sherry started smiling creepily and giggling annoyingly again, as she stated, well, I didn't find help, which is true. It took her about 20 to 25 minutes for somebody to actually want to pull over and help her. I went to the fenced-in area the entire time I was trying to get the zip tie off. I couldn't reach it with my mouth, so I was trying to, um, I don't know what this is called, and she kind of twisted her wrist a little bit, and she was trying to use that, and the investigator suggested it was a hose clamp, and she said, thank you. I was trying to get that off, ran on top of the freeway. It was very difficult because my feet were very cold, my ankles were wobbly, and I was very dizzy. I was very dizzy. I was very, um, I don't want to say short of breath, but short of breath, because that makes a whole lot of sense. I don't want to say short of breath, but short of breath. Be from the screaming, um, and then ran down the on-ramp, off-ramp. There was a truck parked with no lights on, and I stood there and stared at the big rig and thought, there's probably somebody inside there. I do not think I want to go knocking on that door. And then I saw the lights. No, that's not right. I saw the lights to the church before I saw the truck. I didn't know it was a church. Ran down and around, kept losing my breath, and then ran down and again thought, if I could just break into something, even if it's a gas station and the police were called, if I could just break into something and be somewhere, but I couldn't. I shook the door and banged on the door and I looked for windows, but there were no windows. And then I ran back towards where the freeway entrance was and ran down the on-ramp. I keep wanting to say off-ramp, it's on-ramp. And then just ran as fast as I could until I got to the streetlight. And then um, I still had the, um, the, the pillowcase. Is it a pillowcase? When I got to the streetlight, I tried to remove the zip tie again and then pulled it tighter, but was very, was waving the pillowcase and screaming and no one stopped. I was there for a very long time until that trucker. I even walked into the middle of the freeway and cars drove around me, like literally drove around me. And then I stepped back and thought, getting pitchy again here. There's a chain around my waist. Perhaps I should tuck this into my pants. That didn't help. It seemed like it felt like it was a very long time standing there. To me, it felt like a very long time. And then that one truck stopped, but stopped aggressively. Um, and then it was just the trucker got out. I saw him. And then she paused and asked the investigator, are you? Am I still going in the right direction, you were asking? And the investigator reassured Sherry that she was doing great. So Sherry kept going, and then I started screaming, call 911, call 911. 
And then he started stepping towards me and then I got scared and then I just wanted to talk to Keith. It was like everything after that was just slow and I just, I just wanted to talk to my husband. In a weird whisper, Sherry said, and no one would let me talk to him. She started to pretend to get emotional about being kept from speaking to poor Keith. The investigator apologized about that and she pitchily said, it's not your fault. And then she continued, no one would let me talk to Keith. That was very, um, it was very frustrating. And I remember falling over several times and I was very dizzy. I was spitting a lot. I screamed until blood came out, which I'm not even really convinced is a thing. I'll ask about it in the group and maybe we can discuss it there. I've already posted about it. It's Monday right now. And I posted that question a couple hours ago. Seems like a weird question, right? I think you think that there's something wrong with me right now, but it's, it'll make sense once you listen to this episode. So she continued. I even said, there's blood in my mouth. There's blood in my mouth. And he, one of them, and I don't know. And at this point, Sherry lowered her tone and made sort of a mocking statement about the blood, blood in your mouth, like that kind of mocking herself as if somebody who was there at the scene finding her on the freeway was making fun of her for complaining about the blood in her mouth. I actually don't really know what she's talking about, but that's kind of what I picked up from this part of the conversation. It was totally bizarre. I couldn't fully understand what she was saying, but it was really one of the strangest things that she said and the way that she said it. And every time that Sherry mimics herself or makes a weird giggly joke, she always turns to her right and glances at Keith for reassurance. But he's completely disinterested in everything Sherry has to say and is basically staring at his phone or off into space the entire two hours. Next, the investigator wanted to talk to Sherry about getting dropped back off at this location along the freeway. She stated, I don't, I'm trying to remember whether the car pulled over or spun around. I don't remember feeling any of that. I remember feeling, not feeling, well, I guess feeling and hearing the click of a clipping and then, um, get out. I can't even hear her accent when she said that to me and falling out of the vehicle. I don't remember if she touched me or if she grabbed me or if she pulled me. I remember falling. It didn't feel great. I remember falling, pulling as she gestures as if she was being yanked by her hair and then seeing vehicle dark, then walking away, trying to run towards it. I was so dizzy. And then, I mean, it was so far away already. And then trying to figure out where I was, where the road was. I chased after the vehicle at first, but what was I? What was your question? Again, she goes off on these tangents where she even forgets what she's being asked. Sherry was asked if she looked at maps. And she turned to Keith and said yes. We looked at that. Do you have that? And Keith, he's still not wanting to look up from his phone. And he just kind of gestured with his head towards the investigators like, he has all this information. What are you asking me for, bitch? 
to me, Sherry's really trying to pull Keith into the conversation to have him more engaged, to show her more support, and to make sure that he is by her side as lie after lie after lie come flying out of her mouth. But Keith is not on board and it shows. The investigator said, yes, I have a copy of that if you would like to go over it together. Sherry replied, sure, if that's what you would like. It's like, yeah, bitch, we want to go over the exact location where your stupid ass got dropped off for your fake homecoming. He didn't say that, but he said, yes, it would help us put the pieces together. Pieces of lies. But anyway, they go over some of the fake key locations that Sherry and Keith circled on the map the morning that Sherry faked her way home by getting fake dumped by the fake kidnappers, bringing this fake ordeal to its fake ending. At this point, Keith kind of finally chimed in to explain some of the various locations that he had circled on the map, like where Sherry thought she was dropped off, the directions that she ran, the places where she collapsed from exhaustion, and how she kept trying to run, and that she ran to a church trying to break into the place, and then Sherry gets all dramatic, and she puts her hands on top of her head, and she laughs and says, how does the church not have any windows? And the investigator pointed out that those buildings of worship are vandalized all the time and windows are always getting broken out. Sherry said, because I saw a security camera too. And the investigator said, you were running pretty quick. You were running pretty fast. And I think many of us saw this footage on the news shortly after the news broke that Sherry had been recovered. That camera picked up images of her running past the church. Keith continued about the direction that Sherry was running. She kind of leaned in towards Keith and said, I was running to my husband, so I was running pretty fast. Like, don't you want to, like, throw up your lunch right now? I mean, honestly, barf, right? Next, the investigators asked about one of Sherry's hands being free when she was dropped off. He asked how her hand came to be free. If you recall, Sherry was found with a chain around her waist and one of her wrists was bound to the chain with a zip tie. She said there was a clipping noise, but I'm not sure. I want to say, um, yeah, but I'm not sure. But I want to say it was probably. I'm trying to. What did I feel? I'm trying to think if there was the cable. I didn't hear like the clicking noise that handcuffs would make, certainly. I feel like maybe it had been another cable here, under here. And in the video, Sherry's rubbing the top of her right wrist with her left hand. So another cable under what exactly is what I'm thinking. At the moment, Keith is also staring at what Sherry's doing to her wrist. And he looks completely puzzled too. She said, I feel like maybe it had been looped under. It was really tight, like it was pulled tight. This itself wasn't very tight, and she put her left hand on her right wrist. But, like, I didn't have a lot of pull room. The investigator asked how long all that had been on, and she said, what? He said, how long were your hands to your waist? Was that something new? And she said, oh, yeah, that was new. This was new, and she shook her right wrist and continued, I don't remember this being put on. I've been searching my brain for that. I don't remember the metal pieces being put on. And that's very frustrating because it's something that I should remember, but I don't remember it. 
that part, how they got them on. And I try to get them off. And that's something that I try to do from the freeway too. And that's something that I'm trying to see and I cannot see right now. The investigator reassured Sherry that it's normal. Sherry cast her eyes downward and closed them and whispered, I'm sorry, continue. The investigator asked, from the time your wrists were secured to your waist chain, what was the time between that occurring and you getting into the vehicle? And she replied, I have no idea. I don't even remember the zip tie being put onto the chain. I feel like that part's hard. Ow, that part for me is hard to recall because that's when I broke down. And here Sherry's voice begins to tremble and shake. It wouldn't have been that bad of a performance if this woman could have squeezed a tear or two out of herself. But anyway, she kept going. I was having a really hard time dealing with that part because I'm disappointed that I didn't take the moment to try harder to do something to escape. And um, it was my moment of breakdown and saying goodbye to my family. The, after what I thought was a gunshot and not anyone else knowing if I didn't get this stupid cable off. Um, yeah. I think it was a hard time to think about. And Sherry is having a breakdown in the interview at this point, and she's, her voice is shaking and she's crying. But I don't know if I would call it a breakdown. Seems more like uh, a better word for it would be a fake down. And poor Keith over there, scrolling away, totally concentrated on his phone while his wife is pretend bawling her eyes out. He's so focused on his phone, you can actually see the tension in his forehead as he's reading and scrolling while his wife is sitting there having her little fake down and contemplate saying goodbye to her family. Sherry continued, I'm frustrated with that because I should have, I just, I should have taken that moment and I didn't. So here the investigators get back to the cringy praise and reassurances that she shouldn't beat herself up over this. <laughs> I laughed when he said that. You see what he did there? Because she actually did beat herself up over this. <laughs> so Sherry, feeding off of this new round of sympathy and praise for her bravery and courage, she said, I feel like I'm just frustrated because that could have been a moment where I could have done something or gotten her in some way. And the investigator reminded Sherry that if she had done something, she might not be there today. At that point, the investigators asked Sherry if she wanted to take a soft break here, if she had any questions for them, since they've been asking her questions for more than an hour at this point. And then they turned to Keith and asked if he had any questions, and he said that he did. And it seemed like a whole bunch of relief to Sherry. She was more than happy to have Keith take over the questioning for a while. Please do. Can you talk about it a little bit, please? Can I take a break for a moment? And of course, she's laughing and smiling and just having the grandest time of her life. Keith first brought up a large injury that Sherry had on her shin. He said, you have a pretty big injury on your shin. I thought you kind of remembered something, maybe hitting it on the car on the way in, getting forced in or being hit. I don't know if you want to talk about that. At that point, Sherry started rubbing her right shin with her left hand, pointing out that the injury was older. 
The doctor, when he looked at it, said that it was a bad one. Sherry chimed in and said, it's a bad one. There's a contusion hematoma. One of the investigators said, I looked at some of the photos that looked like you may have been stomped or kicked and you kind of touched on that. There was some kicking at some point, right? And here, another bizarre Sherry Papini moment of inappropriate responses to traumatic events goes into her little childlike speak and puts her hands together and says, yeah, I know. I was hoping you guys could get a shoe print off of there or something. And she's literally laughing and probably because she thinks she's getting over on these guys. I can't understand why she's laughing, talking about being kicked in the shins. <sighs> Body language experts over the time that I've been doing this podcast call it duper's delight because it's so freaking amusing to her that they're buying into her lies that she can't help but laugh and giggle. Because now, and this might just be me, I don't find it funny to offer to the FBI that they might be able to lift a shoe print impression off of bruises on my shins from being stomped by two Mexican women. From there, I think they just kind of ignored it and blew it off and they transitioned to wanting to show her some pictures of Sherry and some of the bruises and they want her to try to clarify how she sustained them and she said, I'll do my best. Ugh. So as they're pulling up the pictures on their laptop, Keith brought up that towards the last couple of days, even the last few hours of her captivity, that the women were arguing more than they usually did. So this is like Sherry building up to the part of her fairy tale where she gets set free. And that she mentioned that she feels that she heard a very loud noise and explained it to be like a gunshot. And the investigator said that they were clear on that already. And Keith said that Sherry mentioned that there was a very bad odor in the vehicle too. Sherry said, sewagey. It was like sewagey. And then Keith said after Sherry heard that sound, the gunshot, there was only one person left. The meaner, bigger Hispanic woman was no longer around. From there, the conversation kind of veers off into any work that Keith and Sherry may have had done to their house work on the roof, painting, repairs, things like that. It's all actually irrelevant because we know this was a self-kidnapping. But as they're sitting there talking to Keith about the work being done in the house, I noticed that Sherry grabbed the tissue and started kind of going aggro on her nose, blowing it and rubbing it really hard with some tissue. And all the while, the bandage is still across her face from her broken nose. And I watched the timer. She rubbed her nose about six times in 20 seconds. It doesn't sound like all that much, but really take a tissue, blow your nose and rub it six times and time yourself for 20 seconds. It's excessive, especially if just within the hour demonstrated how she put her sweater up to her nose, her freshly broken nose to absorb all the blood and then flinched when she did it because just the act of putting her sweater up to her broken nose as she was talking to the FBI caused her pain again. But here, less than an hour later, she's aggressively rubbing her nose with these tissues. And from there, Keith is just blabbing on about all of his home improvements that they had done. It's so stupid. And this went on for quite some time towards the end of this interview. But you can see the FBI agent's laptop and you can see photos of Sherry's legs that are pulled up on the screen. 
which they're going to get to next. And now it sounds like like a cooling fan may have kicked on on someone's laptop, so it gets a little bit more difficult to hear Sherry at times. So when you can't understand what you're saying, you just kind of have to insert your own filler words like I do. Like, blah, 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 lie, 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 bullshit, 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 et cetera, et cetera, whatever, whatever. I almost want to skip it because it's so annoying, but I just want to make sure I don't miss anything stupid that Sherry says. So when she was asked if she was okay with looking at some of the photos where it looks like she was kicked or stomped, is she okay with that? She replied, I would like to say yes. It's hard to hear her, but he asked something about an area around the shin, and she said, not specifically. You know, I feel like every interaction, something was hurt. He asked, do you recall being kicked or stomped? And she replied, with objects kicked, stomped on, yes. So what I'm hearing is that every lie that Sherry tells earns her another bruise. Got it. She continued, never slapped, though, I think. Um, I think I would remember if I was ever slapped, but she always adds on these, these words to kind of negate what she just said to make sure she can't be definitively tied down to a statement. Did you ever get slapped? No, nope, never slapped, I think. After that, he closed his laptop and Sherry said, that was it? Thank God. And then she laughed again. Transitioning into some other questions the investigators had, he opened up his notebook and said, I've got some follow-up questions that I need to get some answers to if we can to help close out some of my tips. And in one of the most truly bizarre moments when he said that, and she tried to make a joke about the tips, which I understand can be off the wall and all over the place, but we've heard law enforcement say over and over again that they have to chase every lead until they can eliminate it. So Sherry joked, have you ever owned a giraffe? I don't know. The joke was so stupid and poorly timed and really inappropriate response, considering she just looked at pictures of injuries that she supposedly sustained from being kicked and stomped for 22 days. The investigator started by asking, I think I have a good enough sense to know how the branding occurred. So I don't need a whole lot of play-by-play. I just have a couple of questions if you're okay with that. And Sherry said, yes, let's get it over with. He said, obviously, there's each lettering to it. Was it all at once or was it several different? And she replied, it was separate. It was a long. And then he asked, was it in one extended period or was it over multiple days? And she replied that it was all done in one extended period. He said, I know the older one did it essentially. What was the younger one doing specifically at that time? Sherry replied, she was to the right. I feel like she was the one touching the um, tools. She knows what this was, but she must pretend that she never saw anything because that's her story all along. And if she saw the instrument that was used to brand her, then they would expect her to go through and find the item. And there's a very good chance that Purchases of that specific tool, which was a leather burning kit from Hobby Lobby, that they would find James Reyes buying leather tools at the Hobby Lobby down in Costa Mesa or whatever nearby city that the Hobby Lobby is located at. 
and Cherry could not give away that kind of information or risk getting caught. Anyway, Sherry said that the younger fake kidnapper was the one handling the tools and that they were used to leave that brand on her back. She was asked if she could hear it or see it. She said she couldn't see it because it was behind her. She stated where my head was on the table. So now there's a magically appearing table in the room that she's in, right? A table that she's never mentioned before, but I imagine that this is something where she leaned over like the dining room table and had James Reyes just burn her on the back like that. But this is supposedly happening in her bedroom because she's obviously chained to the closet. She continued, I don't know. There's really an angle where she could see it. If I'm trying to remember if there was a clicking noise, there was, I remember the sound. And then suddenly Sherry gets up and asks for something. She's handed a pen and she started dropping it over and over again onto a wooden end table. And she said, kind of like that sound, a metal pan, a tinking on a metal pan. Almost like if you're watching a show. Oh, you mean like the Sherry Pants on Fire Papini shit show? Like if they were removing a bullet from someone and dropping it into a metal pan. Yes, dreamers, that is the vivid analogy that Sherry made. Of all the metal-on-metal types of analogies, that's what she comes up with? Removing a bullet from somebody's body and dropping it into a metal pan? I mean, that sounds like something I would say. After that, Sherry said she didn't recall any other types of noises as the women were working on branding her. They don't talk about it here in the interview or in her final interrogation at all. But what was branded on her in case you didn't know was the Bible verse Exodus 21:16 that was burned into her shoulder blade. Sherry claimed that her kidnappers branded the word Exodus on her shoulder because she was going to be sold to a police officer who liked that marking. So just for our own information, the Bible verse itself reads, Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him, shall be put to death. Very creative, Sherry Papini. Well played. She continued that after she did that, she didn't hear any other clicking noises coming from the burning tools. She said, I remembered that I was also, I was, I feel like I was in and out and in and out because the pain was so excruciating in between from, and I apologize guys, from my implants, it was all of my weight directly on them. So it was hard to breathe with all of that too. And the investigator suggested it was because she was being held down. And Sherry said, I wasn't necessarily held down. It was my arm. I couldn't pull it up. That's what that was. Yeah, all that weight went straight down. And Sherry kind of made a gesture with her arms like they were at her side. So yeah, she didn't need to be held down because, of course, she was doing this branding of her skin on her own free will. They get into the discussion about a heat source, but we know this thing has its own internal heat source, and I'm assuming that it just plugs in in electricity. The next thing that the investigator brings up has to do with the racist blog that they found that was attributed to Sherry. It was found on an old MySpace account that Sherry had under her maiden name. 
We did talk about this back in our 2018 episode on Sherry. That blog posts were found that were written by her that say some derogatory things specifically about Hispanics. Sherry looked over at Keith and he was just shaking his head no. So people, the public, the internet, they're connecting this racist blog about Hispanics to Sherry accusing two Hispanic women of kidnapping her, which when you think about it is quite coincidental. Sherry said, it's awful. There's so much that my family is going through. I know, I'm sure you guys know everything. Uh, not yet, honey, but they will. I understand that you have to know everything, but my life wasn't perfect before this. It's just an awful feeling that all of everything and all of the made up things, it's just a disgusting, yucky feeling of what's doing to my family. Oh, really, Sherry? This is all just an awful feeling of everything and all these made up things because it's disgusting and yucky and what it's doing to your family? Wow. Okay, well, Sherry Papini gets a 10 for self-awareness in that seemingly unintentional confession of hers. The nerve of her, right? Sitting there talking about how this whole blog thing, this racist blog thing is hurting her family. Sitting there making up things about being yucky and disgusting. Ultimately, as they discussed this blog, Sherry would flat out deny writing it. They asked her how the blog got written and posted under her name, and she said she had no idea. She also even denies having a, a MySpace account. But I fully 100% believe that she wrote that blog and she posted it up on her MySpace. But Sherry tried to deflect when they told her that the blog was posted under her name. And then she asked them if they were familiar with Central Valley High School. She's like, I was an athlete and I played sports. And I'm thinking that she was going to say that she was real popular in school. And it's probably was a fellow student who was jealous of her or who had a grudge on her that posted that blog in her name. But she didn't say that. Instead, she went along the lines of berating her parents. My parents didn't go to any of my games. She was told there are things that the blog can be investigated. We can investigate your blog. And we did. And Sherry goes, great, in a really excitable, high-pitched voice. But then they told her that they couldn't find any of that stuff, and she replied, obviously. But then the investigator said, however, there are aspects of it that people can find truth in it. Again, she denied having a MySpace page. She denied writing the blog. Anyway, they get into this long conversation about all the false things posted on the Internet being attributed to Sherry, and that she and Keith in the past tried to hire a lawyer to have it all taken down. In the end, investigators told Keith and Sherry that the public are leaning hard on this idea that all of this happened because she's racist on Hispanics. Keith pointed out that people are saying that they did this for money. Sherry reiterated, I wasn't a perfect person before this. They quickly asked, what do you mean by that? And she said, I skipped school. I did dumb kid stuff. I had a really shitty relationship with my parents. Excuse my vulgar language. And I lived at the heart center for a long time. And from what I could find about this heart center, it seems like it was something like a mental health facility. So we may have some history of something going on here with Sherry, but uh, I don't really give a shit at this point. I'm over trying to sympathize with this woman. But if she had a tumultuous relationship with her parents, then maybe some of this makes sense. 
She also pointed out that sometimes she would even sleep in her school gymnasium. I found an article on thegrunge.com that I think can more concisely wrap this up. The video begins to meander a little bit and it's going to slowly come to an end. So in this article from 2022 written by Paris L is entitled The Untold Truth of Sherry Papini. The first thing listed is that while Sherry was missing and the investigation was digging around in her background, information surfaced that hinted at some difficulties with her life at home with her family. And these things that were surfacing were causing people to doubt Sherry's kidnapping story, even while she was still missing. According to the article, and we talked about this back in our 2018 episode as well, there were a number of reports from the Shasta County Sheriff's Office from between 2000 to 2003 including several calls that Sherry's parents made to law enforcement regarding her. Her dad reported that Sherry tried to burglarize his home, and a couple of years later, he reported that she tried to make unauthorized transactions on his bank account. In a separate report, Sherry's mother stated that Sherry was causing harm to herself in order to blame her mom for the injuries. She was looking for advice from the sheriff's department on how to deal with that. Sherry's sister, Sheila, also filed a report on Sherry claiming that the back door of her house had been damaged and she believed it was Sherry who did it. Then this article goes into how Sherry had a quote-unquote fake marriage prior to getting married to Keith. In 2006, Sherry married platoon sergeant David Dreyfus in order to be on his medical benefits. At some point prior to this 2006 marriage, according to this husband, Sherry used to regularly donate her eggs, which can make you a lot of money, but it ended up causing her some health problems. So imagine that, dreamers. There's potentially a bunch of little papinis running around Northern California. She managed to marry this guy before he was deployed to Japan. He said that they only met up once in Japan and they never had a home together. Despite the fact that Sherry's mom said that she and her husband were traveling the world together. That's probably what Sherry was telling her mom. But anyway, she reconnected, Sherry reconnected with Keith during the time that she was married to David. They were middle school crushes. Keith was actually Sherry's first kiss, but you could take that with a grain of salt coming from Sherry. When David got back from his deployment, Sherry told him that she was going to marry Keith, and it slowly became apparent to David that some of the mutual friends that he had with Sherry had told him that she had garnered herself quite a solid reputation as a liar. This article in The Grudge then starts, oh, sorry, The Grunge, starts talking, I'm getting tired. (laughs) I've been recording for hours now. Sorry. The article then talked about Sherry's kidnapping and how it went viral and how she injured and branded herself and how she planned the whole entire thing out herself from start to finish. After that, the article says, Sherry Papini's supposed abduction eerily mirrored the disappearance of a former classmate of hers back in 1998. 16-year-old Tara Smith was the homecoming queen at Central Valley High School, and only a year apart from Sherry. She had gone jogging out on Old Oregon Trail, the same road that Sherry disappeared from, in the early evening of August 22, 1998. Sierra Smith reminded her sister that their parents forbade them to leave home alone at night, but Tara left anyway. 
She was never seen again, according to the San Francisco Gate. Eighteen years later, when Sherry disappeared, her grieving family reached out to Smith's father, Terry, for advice. Their daughters were now both victims of a similar crime. When Sherry returned home, she herself spoke to the family and dined with them. Sierra and Sherry visited several times and ate dinner with her parents. Sherry's arrest and disclosure of her fabrication were disconcerting for Sierra, who said Sherry had to be sick and not well to make up such a lie. She called Sherry's situation upsetting, which made it difficult for her to sympathize. So just when you think Sherry Papini couldn't stoop any lower, she went and did something like that. Towards the end of the taped interview, Sherry did get into how terrible her childhood was. And even the investigators said that they did not hit it off with her parents very well either. And knowing what we know about Sherry's history with her family, they all probably knew that the kidnapping was a hoax from the start. And now they're just getting dragged into this. Their daughter's lies are about to go viral and they're going to be humiliated. They don't have to worry about that for very long, though. Jesse Smollett is only a couple years out from taking his place as America's biggest liar with the stupidest publicity stunt. Sherry next said, and you can hear the disdain in her voice, I have zero desire to see them right now, and I find that to be very odd. I actually don't find that to be very odd at all, because Sherry just said that she had the shittiest relationship with them. They've called law enforcement on her. They've accused her of lying, of making up stuff, of breaking in, of taking money. Why would she want to see them? So they can call her out on her bullshit yet again? Of course she's going to keep her distance from them. At the end of the video, they started talking about sexual assault. Sherry said there was never a sexual assault, but come to find out, some of James Reyes's DNA was found on her underwear, and I believe in the next audio that we're going to listen to with James Reyes, he is told by the FBI that the DNA came from semen. I'm sure that they did a rape kit on Sherry when she was recovered, and it showed that she had not been assaulted, but it doesn't mean that they didn't have sex. That was actually one aspect of Sherry's story that I did believe. I believe the reason why she attributed the kidnapping to two Hispanic women was because there was not going to be a sexual assault. The investigator said that most people believe Sherry's kidnapping was a sex trafficking thing, but there was nothing sexual that happened with her during this ordeal, nothing that she was able to recall, she said. She stated, Keith and I were trying to process through that as well. And then she jokes about obviously not being a virgin. I mean, more cringy jokes. Now she's making sex jokes when they're talking about whether or not she remembered being sexually assaulted. What the hell is wrong with this woman? But she carried on. Even if I would have been asleep, I would have felt it. And that's something that was... It was excruciatingly terrifying. Yeah, almost as terrifying as those oversized teeth that she keeps flashing us every time she cracks a joke about being kidnapped and assaulted. I feel assaulted after watching four hours of this shit. But Cherry kept on going. It was excruciatingly terrifying waking up every day. She would check. Oh, um, nope, 
nope, that doesn't hurt. Mm, nope, that doesn't hurt either. So every day she woke up and inspected herself to see if she had been unknowingly sexually assaulted. I've been snuck up on when I've been asleep. And the millisecond I realize that somebody's near me and in the room, I'm awake. And there's no way that I would be put through an entire sexual assault and not know it. Like, can you imagine, like, trying to pretend you were assaulted and that you don't want to describe any details of it? And so the way that you avoid doing that is telling investigators that you slept through it. But anyway, she said she never felt that anyway, ever. And um, I'm still not sure the extent of what happened between James Reyes and Sherry Papini, but if they found his DNA in her underwear and it was seminal fluid, then I'm pretty sure they were doing a little something-something during those 22 days. All right, dreamers, I am going to wrap this up for now. I have a little bit more to talk about at this point of the FBI's investigation into Sherry, but I did want to get this recorded today. It's Monday, the last Monday of February. I want to put out the James Reyes interview next, but I didn't want to get too far ahead. I find the evolution of the conversation that the FBI had with James Reyes is pretty fascinating, so that's going to be coming up next. I want to thank you all again for your love and your support. I'm doing a lot better today. Talking smack on Sherry Papini always lifts my spirits. So thank you for joining in with me. Stay tuned for the next episode. That's all I've got for today. Have a wonderful week and until next time, sweet dreams.